thanks for doing this. I, I know, I think you were on vacation, right? Because I kind of, I think I saw that on Instagram, right? Yeah, I just, I just got back. Uh, I just got back two days ago. Uh, no, uh, yeah, I was on vacation. Um, and then last week we got back and then we went, uh, we just went upstate for a couple of days just to get into the snow for a bit and, and uh, go snowboarding on Sunday. And then, then I just got back yesterday morning. Um, so it's been a, it's been, a, it's been a lot of travel in the beginning of the year because I just got back from Santiago before that, right. but now my feet, at least for this week, <laughs> my feet's on the ground here in New York. So um, you've been, uh, you've yeah. been, you've been busy. As I, I see your, see your board in your background there. I guess that's ongoing stuff for work. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a feature. I'm, that's one feature I'm working on that I have to do a rewrite on and it's, I'm finding a little bit hard to just get the time <laughs> to do it. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's so many little, there's so many little things, so many little small things, yeah. um, including commercial stuff. And then, and then some of the longer form stuff that, mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to do the back end of the year, uh, or in the middle of the year, potentially, potentially a feature and maybe the back end of the year as well. But as with these things, you kind of hold them with an open hand. There seems to be movement on them, but we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. That is very exciting. Cause I, uh, if I, I know that one thing that attracts me and that attracts a lot of people is the idea of having um, something that's more personal to you. Um, the kind of work that you do, the stuff that really resonates are usually the, at least, you know, I'm speaking for myself and some of the people I've talked to. Yeah. The stuff that you do that's more of a personal vein. I think that's that's the stuff that really strikes a chord with us. So very exciting to know that things are moving. Um, but I let's uh yeah. before we get we get into that, but let's maybe start at the beginning. So um I've known I've known your work for Jesus. It's been, I don't know. A, lo a long time i've because i remember right. when i started doing stuff little short videos and music videos with with canon 5ds uh back in the day right I remember stuff going right. on Timio and starting to get some accolades and some traction some attention and then you collaborated with a bunch of people that i know as well and you've been making huge progress since then can you take us back to uh, when it all started for you? Yeah, um, story, by the way, it's yeah, it um, it started. I guess um, I have my honestly, I have my dad to thank for a lot of it um, because I so I went to school. I moved from South Africa when I was twelve years old. Uh, moved from South Africa to Dubai, and um, I went to an international school. Um, but I was I was kind of the only Caucasian kid in my um, in, in my class. Um, and it was a very, very, very um, academically minded school. Um, so they didn't really have a lot of like extracurricular activities. And I guess just kind of like the sheer nature of the setup, I ended up spending kind of a lot of time by myself. But I'm also naturally an introvert um, and um my personality type is, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm a little, I mean, certainly when I grew up, I was a little bit more shy. Um, but I think that really, in a way, became an asset because I would go home after 
after school and I do I do pretty well at school but I was then I had so much like time on my hands because I was a little bit more uh mm. withdrawn I would get into music I got really obsessed with music and my dad saw that passion of mine and really um really kind of looked looked at that passion of mine and tried to encourage me in that passion so when it came uh, I, I, can't, I can't remember. I think, I think I was 16. I was playing music in my bedroom. I was playing guitar. I was starting to get upset, obsessed about recording. I'd buy like a mini disc recorder and record everything that I can. Um, but my dad bought me a little Pro Tools setup. He bought me um, okay. a, a, a Mac and I started recording, you know, multi-channel recordings and got into, got into that sort of stuff. And I remember when it came to finishing high school, my teachers, I, I did pretty well at like the sciences and maths and my teachers, I did the, like the, the, both the A-levels, uh, uh, O-levels, A-levels, and then the American system, the APs and the A-level, uh, no, the, um, SATs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I could come to America uh, essentially on on a really good education, but my dad saw the creative side and he was like, I see that you've got an opportunity to go and study, you know, um, the sciences if you want here in America, but I feel like you'll be neglecting the passion side of it, you know, like the, the music passion side. And he was like, I, I, I would pay for, if you want us to study audio engineering, I would, I'd pay to, to do that. So my dad kind of really encouraged me. Like, I don't think a lot of parents do um, encourage me on the music side of things. And so I studied that um, uh, it's not music per se, but audio engineering, which I guess was a little bit more leaning towards that side of things. Yeah. And then I got hired by a church, um, like the local church that I was a part of in uh, in Dubai. They kind of hired me as a sort of a creative, I guess. Um, but really, I was focusing more on the kind of the musical side of things. And it didn't keep me very busy. I mean, I was on a full-time salary, but I was busy for like three days a week. And then I had two days a week kind of like free and open. So that's when I started playing around a little bit with like, and I don't want this to sound um, uh, like I knew what I was doing, but I was playing around with motion graphics, um, and I was just learning After Effects because I didn't have I didn't have a, a camera or anything that I owned, so it wasn't I w- didn't have the opportunity to kind of like really play on that space. Mm-hmm. So I just started playing with um, with um, with motion graphics, and I remember my girlfriend at the time going, "Oh, this is awesome, but you're." you're lacking a little bit of like humanity and she was right just the the type of things that I was doing I have was thinking about it this morning I have a kind of like a both a like a scientifically minded brain and then also like a creative minded brain but sometimes Mm -hmm. I can it can it can tend towards the more scientific and but I'm but I'm really moved by things that are that are more emotional and creative and aesthetic Mm-hmm. Um, so she was into photography at the time and she encouraged me to pick up a camera and the church actually had a small, different, small camera. I think it was called the X1, a Canon X1. It's like a video beta cam sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I started playing with that and I was, and I was making now, I was integrating the motion graphics stuff with the, with, you know, with the video stuff, kind of like back in the day, Chris Hewitt and Rob Chu and, and yeah. Danny, uh, Danny onto the prologue guys 
um, mm-hmm. were kind of like doing these cool like title sequences. And that was really inspiring for me at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of playing around with that. And I mean, you know, I was like, I was learning by copying, you know, and um, but it was a really fun, it was kind of a really fun space to, to kind of explore. Everything felt new. Um, and then I was like, okay, this was just before my wedding and I bought a Canon 7D. I spent, <laughs> I, I had like, I can't remember how much money, but I was, I had just enough money to buy the camera, but I still had to buy a ring. And I had to go into debt to buy the ring. And my mom was like, what are you doing? You know, like buy the ring. And then maybe later after you're married, buy the camera. But my wife was, or my girlfriend at the time was like, you should buy the camera. I mean, I don't, she didn't even know that the ring was kind of in question. But anyway, I bought the camera, bought the ring. And then I started really getting, taking it seriously. Because I started putting some of these things that I was making online I put it on Vimeo and people started to see it and people started to react to it and what I was trying to do a little bit to try and kind of distinguish myself from what a lot of people were doing at the time there was a lot of there was a lot of like tests camera tests lens tests and um, that people were putting up and they were kind of cool but I was trying to I was trying to to bake in a, a concept of sort so have something I guess to say a little bit more but it was more just exploring ideas um, and my mind kind of like likes concepts. And so and there were a couple of people around the time that were doing that sort of stuff. And and I think now I've kind of like found uh, success. I even hate that term, but like Gustav Johansson, I remember was kind of around at that time. And the Daniels, obviously like they've taken off. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of just seeing the, the 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 people around the time that were doing that sort of thing. And I was like, that's kind of, I want to say something. I want to have a cool concept, almost like a short commercial type thing that I'm, it's kind of proof of concept, but I wasn't even thinking in any strategic sort of way. It was just curiosity and trying to mess around with things and play around with things. And I remember I put, put up, I did one or two videos. I shot some construction workers in Dubai, put a piece of music next to that. Um, and that had a bit of an effect. And then I was really, cause I was also doing a little bit of composing. And then I remember I did this one trip to Israel, to uh, like Israel and Jordan. And on the flight, I was composing a piece of music on the computer and um, it really inspired some visuals. And after I, came back from this trip I went to Dubai and I kind of just shot with a basic idea in mind but I was putting the headphones um in my ears of this piece of music and just listening to this music on repeat and I was traveling with my camera and I was shooting out of trains and shooting the city and um and I had like a basic framework of this this uh, conceptual piece that I wanted to do and I started piecing it together and I put that online and I guess like if if I've ever had the experience of something going viral, I mean, it didn't go viral. Like we understand today things go viral, but in the Vimeo universe, I guess like it had a staff pick and a couple of people saw it and, and it was enough to get some, um, to, you know, to, to, to have a couple of people reach out. I remember a publicist in Italy reached out cause they wanted to do the next Coca-Cola burn campaign. And was, that's when I realized, Oh, like maybe this is having some effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I was too young and too scared to say yes to that commercial because I, you know, I didn't have any sort of like production experience. I didn't even know they were asking my DPs and production designers. And I was like, 
that's just me <laughs> it's just it's just me composing it and sound designing it i don't know any of this so i passed on that but then um soon after that there was an opportunity to move to australia and just be a part of like a bigger a church organization and work with them and learn more and learn more about what it's like working in a team um and then three years later i i moved here to work with a company called variable um and and that was kind of the that was kind of the point of entry uh into the, the commercial space i i'd come in so right after i got married i came to new york just for a visit and i was like i would one day love to love to live here and i really like at that point i was more in the music side the film side hadn't really taken over and i didn't know whether there was going to be an opportunity to ever move here but then subsequent to that 2011 i moved to australia and i i had met the variable guys that were here in new york just before i moved to australia they they were in dubai we had such a good connection and we kept that connection while i was in australia and i kept collaborating with them on both editorial side sound design side grading music and so three years later, they invited me to come over and, and, and yeah, that's how I ended up here in New York and started working more in the commercial space. And yeah, now I'm trying to move into from commercials and music videos that I've been doing over the last two, uh, over the last, I would say eight years or so, or seven years, seven, eight years now more into trying to do the longer form form stuff and yeah it's just a little bit more shadow work I guess it's like work that no one really is seeing but um I think that's I've always been more interested in the things that felt more cinematic and had a larger canvas uh you know I for me cinema is a kind of a transformative experience and I get to learn all the tools and the craft elements of it um in commercials and music videos but I think as like uh, a way to really express your ideas and the things that you believe about what you believe in general. Um, I think the canvases and commercials and music videos are a little bit small. So I, I'm really excited and it's been fun working on, on the longer canvas, even though there's nothing to show for it yet. But even just even if it was only ever that, it's almost like the therapy of of going to the page and 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 trying to excavate all that stuff has been an amazing experience. So, yeah, we'll see what happens um, on that round. But yeah, it's been exciting. It's really interesting to, to kind of hear the whole story from the beginning up until now, because I kind of I was aware of a lot of the the pieces, but now that they're all connecting, when once you we went through your your story, it all makes sense to me, and I really. And it really resonates with me. Um, some of the stuff that you mentioned, like getting that gig to shoot for Coca-Cola and having to say no because we, we really had no idea what you were doing yet. I kind of went through the same the same thing, and I, so I, I know how how um, tantalizing it is to get an opportunity, but then being very afraid of. Um, being the wrong time to do it basically and not being fully exactly. prepared and, and that's that's a really scary thing but then overcoming that is a is a great feeling is a great feeling to that um yeah so I, when you join variable and that's kind of where um i've i've i, I um, kept track of your progression basically by the stuff you you kept publishing over the years on the videos you were doing once you started working with variable that took a more professional 
tone to the stuff because you obviously had access to production and a lot more um, value there. And I remember right. so you worked on a bunch of stuff with those guys, but I remember something that was very important for, I'm guessing, both very variable and to some degree to you, this shoot you guys did in Greece, right? There was this, um, mm. I don't remember the name of the project right now, but uh, with the... Uh, yeah, the rocket motors. Exactly. Well, that was, I, I remember, I, I think everybody listening to this will remember that one because that was very intense and really mind-blowing, just the fact that you guys got to capture that in, in a way that just looked and felt beautiful. Can you talk about that one right. a little bit? Did you, did you, do you remember that one? What's is there a story there? Yeah, I do remember. I I I was still living in Australia when I came across a video, a short little photojournalistic piece. Um, it was kind of before Vice was Vice, right? And Vice is so good at like finding these little unique cultural stories. So it was before that, and it was I can't remember I can't even remember who did it. Really small, but shot on beta cam, beta cam, and it was just basically like a little I think it was like a minute and a half, just telling you like almost like a newsreel clip. Oh, we're here in uh, Frontados where they're doing the annual da 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 da, and then they just show you basically what it is. I was like, what is this? And then I researched it a little bit, and I've and I've learned about the history and. The fact that it was a kind of a mock war um, that was employed by the, um, the 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 people that live on this small island of Frontados um, or Chios, but in the village of Frontados. So the the island is Chios. It's the closest. I think it's the closest neighboring Greek island to uh, to Turkey, and you can see Turkey like you can see it in the distance, and they were they were essentially creating this fake war between these these two neighboring churches that would keep the neighboring Ottomans at the time at bay. Um, and that tradition is over 200 years old. And now it's obviously, it's more kind of like a grassroots. It's kind of a traditional thing. It's, it doesn't have any of that um, uh, reality anymore. It's now a little bit more just like we want to keep the tradition. But I was so taken aback by that little story. And then obviously, like the visual element of it is really incredible. But I was, we did it. Uh, it's a four hour thing, essentially. I mean, it's months, it's years. It's like every, they do it every year. And then a couple of months before they start building the fireworks, they make a hundred about 100,000 fireworks. And then on the night, it only lasts four hours. And so, you know, we had a crew of six. It was just a crew of six. We had three rooms in a hotel basically. And we went up and we um, did a little bit of like documenta documenting how they how they built it and that process and trying to get the philosophy of, um, you know, there's kind of a romantic relationship that they have with the, ro with the rockets, so to speak. Um, and just to try and get some of that, we did a bit of an interview, captured a little bit of a story and then actually captured the night with, I think we had three or four cameras, uh, maybe three cameras, a drone, a red, and then um, um, a slow motion phantom camera that we, I think we borrowed or something. Um, and it was such an incredible experience making that uh, because it there was such an energy in the air 
as we were leading up to this event taking place, it's like you feel it's, I don't know how to explain it for me. It's like rugby. It's like the anticipation of a massive rugby game. There's this real excitement and it was a beautiful, like it was just a incredibly potent experience. I, you know, I really still want to make, I, I want to continue making stuff like that. And in a way it's harder when, when you're a little bit more, I don't want to say successful because I don't even, consider myself successful necessarily i'm thankful for what i do but it is really harder when let's just say once you're maybe a little bit more established because it's uh, it's almost like a lot of people don't see the point when you're when you have more work on your reels like oh why do you want to go and do that like the next thing you should be doing is a feature put all your money to go and do the feature it's like and for me it's like yeah i want to do the feature but i also really just want to follow my curiosity like it's, I really it's seen as a waste of time by some people right exactly it's a waste of time because it doesn't build to the next big thing and I'm like but I don't care about the next big thing I just I, the people that I really admire are the people that have grown old um but still treat their little projects as if it's the best next thing you know like the, the David Lynch's the Terrence Malick's the um um what's his name maybe maybe martin scorsese isn't in the same camp but he's still got so excited about what he's doing and it doesn't have to be the next absolute best thing he just wants to go make silence which nobody is going to want to see but it means something to him and that's why he wants to go make it and i feel the same way like there's so many short films that i've written and it's really hard to get financing for that because people go, kind of go like, what's the point if it's not working towards a feature? What's the, And I look, I get it from a business standpoint. I get that. But mm -hmm. from me following my curiosity and also just trying to learn more, I want to just learn in this, in a, in a, in a safer space and the more um, uh, forgiving space of short films where you can experiment on things, you can try things and then build that into the feature things that will come and that's in in time that stuff will come but and i have that there they're obviously they're building in the background there um but i want to make shorts and i want to do format agnostic stuff you know where it's like okay let's just take a camera again and go shoot something like i want to do i want to do something right now on artificial intelligence that is a little bit it's like i said the documentary is it i'm not i, I don't even know yet but um what i'm wanting to explore is like the value of people right and how our value is is being called into question with the advancement of artificial intelligence right now it's like mm -hmm. you know there's plus and minuses to the conversation but i think i'm trying to explore that from like the value of the human being and what we have to offer standpoint and i don't know exactly yet what is i want it to be highly creative but also ask really pertinent questions um but that does not going to fit and a feature is not going to fit in a necessarily like a, a strictly documentary format but i want to go do it you know so, anyway i'm it's i'm in this like middle space right now is there's too many things that i want to tackle you know and not enough not enough resources to do it but we'll find a way but i think that's that's always a our, our preferred state is to have so much going on that we can't even choose, choose what to do i want to go back to um because I, I looking at your work i um I've always felt that, and more and more so over the years, I've always felt like you have this um, unending interest in the human uh, nature and human nature. Um, you always want to, because 
a lot of your shots are about people, about people's faces or people's movement or interaction between them. And that has been evolved, has been evolving um, in your work. So I uh, and you we were you were talking about rocket wars, and uh, those I assume were because you you guys didn't have time for blocking or any of those things that wasn't even the point. So you kind of found the shots on the day, yeah. and that's different yeah. from what you've been doing more recently, where there's production and there's blocking and there's obviously preparation for things, and it's more of a narrative um, uh, thing. Yeah. So I, I guess those those things have, um, I guess you've you've have kind of you know evolved if I can say that from just finding the shots and making concepts out of those and building a narrative after the fact and now it's you're starting with a narrative and then you're finding the shots and then you're building uh, on on top of it yeah so that's yeah that's yeah. It. What's your, I guess what I'm trying to get at, what's your process nowadays for, let's let's talk about your more personal stuff. I, I want to get into your commercial work, but what's your process for the stuff you're building on your own? Where do you start? Uh, often, often it starts, uh, it starts in, often in, two, in kind of two ways. One is I'd listen to a podcast um, I listen to and I listen to very intersecting lines of interests. So, religious, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, psychology. Like I listen to like Lex Friedman, for instance, um, Joe Rogan, Russell Brand, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, John Verveke, um, another guy called um, uh, Jonathan Pajot. They all kind of they all wrestle like with the human condition, our space on this world from those various different angles. Mm. And I'd often like hear something in what, something that they're wrestling with. And I go, Ooh, I want to explore that or unpack that. Um, there is, as a, for instance, um, there is, there's a conversation between a guy called Bishop Barron, Jordan Peterson, John Verveke and Jonathan Pajot. John Verveke is a cognitive scientist. Jordan Peterson, obviously, is a clinical psychologist. Um, Jonathan Pajot is a Russian, uh, it's like an Orthodox carver, and Bishop Barron is a baron. But they 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 talk about co cognitive science from those four different strands, or they talk about consciousness essentially from those four different strands. And it's been very interesting. Um, kind of listening to those because I've 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 been really fascinated with. I mean, obviously over the last while, well, I think everyone has, but for the last two, three years, I did a music video for a band called Aya. And at the time I was just kind of creating a story about a foreign object kind of in the vein of arrival. But the more that I, the more that I like uh, kind of dissected the work as it was like coming to me, as it was kind of coming from inside of me, the work itself became a metaphor for our relationship with artificial intelligence or with technology more broadly, but more specifically artificial intelligence. And I realized that in this allegory, embedded in this allegory was the story of the, the Garden of Eden story, the kind of the, the Adam and Eve story, um, taking from the fruit of the, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And I, I mean, even as I was, even as I was like conceptually thinking about it, um, I realized that I'll show you something. 
Do I have it here? Hold on one second. This 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 film that I was making was about um was about a monolith, right? And it was about a monolith and this person trying to interact with a monolith monolith similar to 2001. And as he's trying to interact with it, touch it, he loses his mind, he loses control. And that's essentially the same thing that happened with Adam and Eve. And I just looked at the phone again and I realized like, you know, the the, the back of the phone is the eaten apple. It was the thing that that destroyed the utopia. It was the thing that caused the fall of mankind. Yeah. And it's it's just kind of funny that it's, kind of the thing that's happening at the like we're we're repeating the pattern you know and i'm not saying that that story is like historic uh, uh, an account of history what i do think is that these stories stories similar to that they pattern human behavior and that's the thing that i that i am really interested and fascinated about and i think in a way it's telling it was telling us that if 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 we have a kind of not a posture towards um, a posture of humility towards reality, if we think we have it figured out, if we're clamoring for, um, you know, for more knowledge and more wisdom so that we can be better, like there's this great quote in um, in Jurassic Park that said something to the effect of, your scientist always just wanted to know if they could and they never bothered to ask the question whether they should. Um, you know, and I think that's sometimes the thing that happens with human nature is we always want to stretch what we think is possible and can be done. And we never question whether it should be done. Yeah. And I think that's our relationship towards um, towards our devices and towards artificial intelligence. But I'm just so, I've been so fascinated with that sort of idea and um, and listening to these guys talk, listening to Lex Friedman talk, listening to these podcasts. Um, there's so many ideas. There's a short film I'm writing now about an artificial intelligent um, uh, monk or um, I'm going to call it seminarian. So someone who teaches a bunch of kids uh, as young seminarian kids theology. Um, they take the writings of St. Augustine and they put it all in an artificial, uh, artificial intelligent machine. And it's about their relationship with this monk and how things kind of start to fall apart. And it's written by this guy called uh, Jack Dempsey back in the 1950s, back in the 1960s. So that's a film that I want to do. There's another film that I want to do about a model. So make it very like Safdie Brothers, very fast, very kind of like um, early Scorsese, New York street style about a model that sees an image of her on a massive billboard. She's walking down the street and she spins out and she's like, I didn't take that photo. And it's actually someone's created a digital avatar of her that without her consent. And she's trying to figure out like, how did that happen? She's had so many photos of herself online and people have used all those photos of her to create a digital avatar. So it's another thing that I really want to, and that's from an article. So to answer your question, where do these ideas come from? They either come from conversations that I'm like overhearing or listening to on podcasts right. or from articles. Um, and so um, I find a lot of stuff just, you know, reading through the Atlantic or reading through a New Yorker magazine or wherever, typically articles and podcasts are where, and then some of these things are more latent. They come from stuff that I'm reading, like, you know, either like religious literature or, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really into like the, the, the Russian Orthodox and Greek 
um, readings at the moment that are so interesting for me. I come from a kind of like, kind of, I come, my parents were missionaries. So I come from that sort of background, but always from a more Protestant background. And I had my own kind of like crisis of faith, but reading something a little bit more foreign to me and a little bit more ancient is something I'm, I've been really interested in. And I also think to me, it's, I think a lot of those traditions have been discarded. Our generation isn't so much interested in that stuff anymore, but I, I do think there is going to be a return to the wisdom traditions, let's just call them that, um, because I think people, this guy John Verveke, he's a um, he's a uh, college professor, he's a cognitive scientist, and he says he said something so apt. He says people are interested. A lot of my college students come to me asking. They know a lot about data. Mm. Um, they and they know a lot about information where they can find information. They're come to me because they're looking for some knowledge, but hardly of my hardly any of my students ever come and asking me for wisdom. And I think that is the, the that is the space we're in. There's data everywhere. There's information. You know, you can find that knowledge is a little bit harder to find, but you need the human, the older human that's seen life, that's been through life, or even generations before, uh, readings from generate or writings from generations before, that there's so much, there's so much, like I'm just reading Kierkegaard and um, Dostoevsky, and it's hard to, like, it's a hard language to get through, but just in terms of how they understand how people behaved. I think it's, wow, the, I it's, think it's the, the ability to interpret the times. So, yeah, uh, listening to you speak just now and, and the things that interest you are the things that interest me right now as well. And I think right. it's people like, um, the Daniels or Anthony Scott Burns or even Ash Thorpe, mm. all of these artists who are doing the work now. Uh, it seems like all of us who are about the same age, I would say around the 40s, we're at the intersection right. of two different generations. Because we were born mm. with internet or any of those things or social media, right. any of that. And now we're full right. on in the generation that's coming after us who are already here those were you know those were born with the internet they're used to it they, they look at it in a different way like you said it's data 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 well, what do i do with all this data and we we're at the intersection of both these generations and i guess we feel like we, we feel this overwhelming weight on our shoulders to try and make sense of things as they happen mm. and as they have happened mm. before. Um, mm. And I guess the way that, uh, the way, the thing we have to talk about it, the way we know how to talk about it is to make films, is to explore a visual, is to tell stories. So I think mm. it's really, I think uh, I'm just thinking about this now. And I think it's really something that's going on with our generation. Because we need mm -hmm. this podcast. I, I keep talking about with other guests, even uh, the idea of doing this podcast and the name for it is um, Signal to Noise. Because I need to mm -hmm. find a signal, something that makes sense of all the noise. And the way to do mm -hmm. it is to talk to fellow filmmakers, fellow designers, fellow artists, creatives. What mm -hmm. What's their tool of choice to make sense of things 
And I'm guessing that's mm -hmm. what you're saying, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of what you're about with the work that you're doing these days. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, it's interesting to think about it this way because I think we all need to talk about what's going on now. And we're at this perfect mm -hmm. intersection of these both of these two worlds, which takes me to mm -hmm. uh, the people who you collaborate with. Um, I know you've collaborated with a, a bunch of different people on many different projects, but somebody you work with quite a bit was Khalid, right? On many, mm -hmm. many projects. I, I've spoken mm -hmm. with Khalid a little bit um, um, about you know some of the stuff we have in common and whatnot. Can you talk about how did you meet meet Khalid and um, the projects you guys worked on? Yeah, so Khalid, it's funny. I actually chatted to him. I chatted to him two days ago, and we're we're supposed to we're supposed to catch up yesterday, but I think we're gonna try and do it today. Um, we met in Dubai. Him and um, what's his name? Um, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan Begrell, Sorry. Um, he they were partners, part of a company called Next Level Picture back in the day, and mm -hmm. Next Level Pictures, and they were coming. Sorry, someone's just knocking on the door. Um, no, so I met Khalid in 20, 2010, I think it was. They were coming through Dubai, him and Jonathan Bregal were coming through Dubai. They were shooting a feature, I think, out in Thailand, and they were on a stopover in Dubai. And I was living in Dubai at the time, and I think I had put out one or two videos uh, online. And Khalid had also done this like video, I think it was like on Egypt or something. Mm -hmm. And that's where I that's where I was connected to his work or I had seen his work before. And he reached out and he said, Would you like to meet? And I remember meeting them at a mall at like a food court or something. And um we hit it off. Like we just really we were both really enthusiastic. I mean, him, John, and myself were really enthusiastic about film, and we were just kind of like starting and learning. And uh, we kept we we kept the relationship kind of from a distance. I then moved to Australia, um, and they were starting to set up. They were transitioning from from next level pictures to variable. They also brought uh, Tyler Ginter on board, and the three of them started um, variable. Mm -hmm. And I just collaborated with them on a lot of their passion work. So they start they they started their company doing the holy video, um, a reflection. There was a bunch of passion projects that they did that helped launch them. Right. Um, and I was involved with all those passion projects, either in an editorial capacity, a music capacity, or a sound design color grading capacity. And by the, by my third year in uh, Australia, they reached out and said, would you want to move and come and join us? So, and I think Khalid was transitioning out. Um, so there was a space for, for me to kind of take on a, a creative role. And I did that, but I kept, then when I moved to New York, I kept a relationship with Khalid and whenever we could, they also had a, still a relationship with Khalid. He was shooting a lot of the stuff that we were doing at the time. So we went to go shoot Rocket Wars together um and a bunch of other projects and yeah he's been i mean he's such an incredible friend of mine and incredible yeah, talent yeah yeah really really good yeah because i uh, i i remember seeing his name on a lot of a lot of the work that you guys were were were, were doing back then um yeah yeah and, and you also i think you've 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 done quite a 
quite some commercial work all over Europe as well, because I, I think you've shot in, in a lot of different countries with some different cinematographers. Um, but before we get into who and the more craft side of, of things, you were talking about your process and where ideas come from for your personal projects. But once you get to the scripting uh, stage, I know different directors or script writers have different processes. What's your, mm. how do you go about when starting a script? Do you get the whole idea out on paper and then do a bunch of rewrites? Are you a slow builder? What's your, what, what's your, what's your thing there? I'm a, I would say I'm a, I'm a slow, I'm a, it's slow, fast, slow. So it's slow. It can be kind of slow gathering all the pieces and organizing the pieces to get to to get to that point it takes a while yeah. where it's kind of like it's organized but once once it gets to that point i'll take each one of those cards um and i'll write all i write each of those cards out as two lines one is for my scene heading for those listening uh salomon was pointing at his board in the back he's got a huge board with a bunch of different cards which is what he's talking yeah about. so i just take I just take index cards. Like if I'm working on a script, just I'll keep it more, the, the, the description more audio. Um, but when I'm working on a script uh, for a feature and it's like, it's, it feels so stupid of me talking about it because I don't have a feature to show yet. But I mean, this is the, this is the process, at least for me at, at, at this point, um, I'll take a feature, I'll uh, write out like 15 key turning point scenes and I'm using a, a bunch of different processes like particularly Save the Cat is useful Robert McKee's storybook is useful Sid Field's book is useful there's a bunch of I've kind of amalgamated some ideas from all of that into something that I feel at least is working for me to get it onto the page um, so I'll take 15 core scenes that describe like 15 key turning points in the film and i'd like block that out across four acts act one act two a act two b and act three um and i'll plot those 15 across those acts um and using more of the save the cat model to kind of where those should go in each one of those acts and then i'll write other key scenes that connect all the other scenes about 40 between 44 to like 64 scenes um that i plot across this uh across this board and then i take that and i'll open up final draft and um i'll write each scene down as like the scene description so like exterior you know barn day and then one line that describes the basic dramatic action and the character involved and then I'll do the next. So it's like scene heading and then one line scene heading. So I've got essentially like a three page document that basically tells me my whole film very, very simply. Okay. So I know when I start what each the next scene is, like the basic details of each scene. And I'll just start writing. And I'm, I don't allow myself to go back to any bit that I've written until I've written through it from beginning to end. And I don't allow myself to skip ahead to like try and write the, the next exciting thing. If there's a section where I need to, it feels like oh, I've set something up and I'm not quite 
I can't quite just jump to that next scene. Then I'll just write the next, I'll just come up with the next scene after it. But essentially that script was 44 scenes. And I think it ended up being like 54 scenes. So I wrote 10 additional scenes kind of in between it, just to make sure that there's a, that it flows, that the things that I'm setting up, I'm also satisfying uh, later on in the film. And then again, I don't allow myself to go back. So I'll write just at the bottom of the screenplay, hey, remember to do this on the next rewrite. Or, you know, so I'll have like 10 or 15 lines of things that I also then have to address. That's just, it's just helping me kind of keep account. So when I did this screenplay, I wrote it in eight days. Like I, when I sat down to go, you know, after I had my four pages worth of, uh, of um, you know, scene heading and the, the essence of the scene itself, it took me very, very quickly because I had a very clear structure in mind of like, okay, I know every next scene and what it should be. Um, now I really have to work on the dialogue and I there's some stuff that obviously it needs a lot of work. Mm. But um, yeah, it came out really typically quick. This this next phase is actually pretty hard because it it is sometimes hard. I need I need people to read it and give me feedback. Like the feedback process is really helpful. The notes pro process is really helpful now because sometimes you can you can kind of go, I don't know how to tweak it. You know, I don't know what to change. Right. So the voices from the outside, just helping to see it objectively really does help. And when you're when you're building your your, your scripts and going through that process, are you always mindful of production uh, or budget or? No. Right. No, <laughs> not all, yet. Not yet. Right, right. Because that's, do you find like that's too too much of a constraint for your writing or is that a concern that comes? It, yeah, it can be. I mean, I will say this. When I wrote this one, I I think I my, how to explain it? I don't think my scripts are very expensive because mm. um, I'm, I'm at least where I'm at now, I'm more interested in like people and so that's it's it's not it's not high it's not super high concept uh, there is one that i'm exploring uh, at the moment that's kind of in the vein of my ar music video that i want to make some it's it is a sort of like a multiverse film it's like spider-verse meets uh, spider-verse meets arrival sort of thing um but and that will be expensive. Um, but I, I think all my ideas, I actually am trying to write them in a very grounded way. So less Hollywood, more independent, like within an ind independent sort of spirit, um, you know, but still have a sort of like a production value and, and, and uh, an aesthetic quality to it that feels elevated, but that doesn't feel Hollywood pretentious, you know. And how do you, you know, because you started as a more on, on the visual side of things, you know, trying stuff out and doing you know, camera tests and all that. That was your window into into the industry, let's say. But uh, how do you get away from thinking about shots first and then trying to fit a concept or a story into those shots? Because I know that's, that, that's what we all... all start with doing and that's kind of our our go-to is mm -hmm. to a beautiful shot or a beautiful sequence and then try and figure out a story that fits the shot because mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. that's 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 starting with the roof and not you know the foundations right how do you yeah 
manage that? That's definitely changed for me, I think, over the last four or five years. Like I I really am drawn these days more to um I guess all the stories that I'm drawn to these days are uh how do people find their worth? Um and uh, and misunderstandings uh, situations situational uh happenings i don't know the the correct way to describe it but things that happen that creates a sort of like a misunderstanding between people and people that feel like they've they've kind of been misrepresented and so i'm really really fascinated when i read stories like that um or stories of character of people that don't have their sense of worth like i found this one story about um about these people, their um, blood, their blood donors, but their lives are so valuable that they that they get driven from country to country with armed vehicles, essentially, like with like, uh, you know, they're like the road is paved essentially for them because if they need to go last minute to fly to Kenya because someone needs a blood transfusion, they've got a specific passport that you know, and that's a story of someone who's like super valuable, but I almost want to tell a story of like someone who's been protected by their parents for the longest time because they don't want their kid to essentially just be someone that's kind of thrown thrown around, flown around um, to go and be someone's like lifesavers. Like they want their child to still have a life, you know? So there's there's a kid essentially who grows up not knowing. And I want that kid to almost feel like he's been orphaned by his parents, you know? And he doesn't understand like, why did his parents leave him? Because it's a little bit more of a a sci-fi idea in the vein of like a never let me go. You know, okay. but um, but but it's about worth, you know. So, and I don't know what that is going to be visually or anything just yet. But it's like that idea just really fascinates me. So, I think my my evolution, I guess, to some extent, has been like yeah, from very visual or even very sonic because I'm so driven by sound to very conceptual. But I think these days it's a little bit more like a little bit more emotional and worth, which I think when you, when you start dealing with like a question of worth, it's at the same time, very spiritual. So, you know, I think for me these days, honestly, I've, I've thrown away like that spiritual component of my life so much because I grew up and, you know, you, when you grow up in any sort of religious household, there's a stigma, but as I've had my own kids, it's like been the thing that's almost been the most valuable to me. It's like, because it, it, to me at least it answers so many questions of of worth and it's not a question of science versus religion it's just like who are you how you know what value do you have on the earth are you made with a sort of like a, a an imprint of worth you know and so that's just something i yeah i really fascinated to explore and but explore from counterpoints and counter arguments and yeah it's uh sorry if that's a very convoluted uh, uh, answer that's a great, great answer. And that's kind of a nice segue now to talking about, because uh, once you have the uh, the idea down and the script down and you know what you want to do and you know what you have to do to get the thing done to to the, to the, the perfection that you're seeking, then you, uh, I'm guessing you, you tend to collaborate with the same people over and over because, you know, you get to know them. There's a shorthand there. But once you're on... I, I'm guessing pre-production before you get on set or before you get on location. Um, what sort of director are you? Are you one that 
gets everybody deeply involved and there's a lot of discussion and everybody gets to be a part of the thing and have a piece of the project or are you somebody who's more more of a David Fincher where you, you really know what you want and you're very much uh, assertive on on every step of the way to get things done? What's your, who are you? Um, I would say I can be a little bit more David Finchery, maybe in like the final, final stages of an edit, like the final, final stages when we close everything up, when things get graded, when things but I'm a little, but I'm, but I'm much more collaborative in the, in the, in the earlier stages, like when we're blocking things and when we're shooting things and trying to, trying to invite ideas. I mean, I, I invite ideas even through like the post, like all the way through the post, but right when it kind of like, right when it needs to have a thumbprint or just an, a cohesive idea when I've like whittled down when I've made all my choices of culling and shaping and right at the end, it's like, okay, now I, it needs to feel, I need to have that like ownership of it right at the end, but all the way through, it's kind of a culling process. I don't come with, with the thing already shaped. I don't come with the formed, um, with the formed idea of what that statue should look like. I come with the empty clay and I cut the first little pieces out and then I have a DP throw in ideas and a production designer. And yes, I do have ideas of shots and, but I also want to invite, you know, other counter ideas, ideas that make it better. Um, it's just more, more towards the, like the, the end stages where it's like, okay, no, I think it needs to be like this or, you know. And do you find that with experience, is it more of a case of saying no to things or saying more yes to things? Can, by that, I mean, with experience, you kind of know what you don't want, what doesn't work for you or what, what doesn't fit. And you kind of know better what does. Or are you still open uh, to a lot of experimentation? Are you more, I guess, I guess with experience, you, you kind of know who you are a little bit better, even on set, right? Yeah, yeah. But I would say it really depends on the type of project. So for instance, if it's a personal project, down for experimentation if the clock is ticking on a commercial project not so down for experimentation because and that's that's tough for me because i i i always want to leave room for people to kind of like bring what they have but i don't like going over on budget or going over on time on on someone else's dollar um so i try and be uh, i would say I try and be quite cognizant of the fact that someone else is paying for, uh, you know, a, a commercial. Um, if there's room, if there's a lot of room, like we have a lot of shoot days or, you know, there's a lot of room for prep, then we can experiment a little bit more. But I find the experimentation is just, I, and also with my own personal projects, I leave a lot of room for experimentation as well. Mm. And uh, there's a lot of planning, but there's a lot of room to also throw the planning out if something better presents itself in the journey to the shoot or like when I say like in the preparation for the shoot or even on the shoot itself. Um, I just, yeah, leave a little bit more time. But typically on commercials, there's not as much room. There's room to explore for a director's cut a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um it just really depends on the dynamic with the client. If the client's like, yeah, okay, yeah, shoot, shoot one for you, shoot one for me, you know, right. then we can. But 
typically in commercials, it's not like that. It's like, hey, guys, we need to get the shot that you storyboarded. Now get the next one that we storyboarded, you know? That's yeah, not, that, that not the nicest environment for me to create in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that makes sense. And do you do, do you find that um because you started as a visual and a sonic person, do you find that helps with dealing with VFX houses and sound designers and musicians? Because you've kind of been there, you know what's possible, you you know the uh, you know the work. Does it help? Yeah, yeah, to an extent. I think I mean what I what I constantly am trying to do as much as I can is is tr is try and have like repeat relationships. The only thing that's really hard with that is my work is very spread uh, across Europe, uh, America, and mm -hmm. European guys don't want to work with American guys, and American guys don't want to work with European guys. So that's why I have to. I have to like work with a set of editors in Europe and then a set of editors in the US and a set of sound designers. I don't get my same person all the time. And that can be a little frustrating, especially when we're trying to do then a passion project, you know, um, because then I haven't worked with the same people the whole time that we can all do the passion project together. So yeah, it's, I wish I could work in one market like all the time and then you know it's this i mean you working with the same people so that when the passion project rolls around we can kind of like attack that thing together as well but yeah sadly it just doesn't quite work out that way and how do you feel uh things have changed with working with agencies and clients uh nowadays have, have things changed a bit since you know before the pandemic after the pandemic or even before that what's your experience there yeah um it has i no. i would say especially in america um i think it has changed a little bit with agencies and clients i think there was there used to be a lot more trust i feel like between from from the client side on the agency so the agency had more trust with the client so the the, the agency could be a bigger voice maybe even more so than the client in terms of like they could you know the, the client would stand behind an agency's decision. And then that would spill down to us as well, because there was just a lot more trust. And I think clients now dominate. Um, I feel like generally they dominate the creative process. And often, often, I'm not saying all the time, but often the clients are more cons worried about the consumer um which you know valid that's a valid reason the creative isn't the first thing that that is being thought of it's like how's this in service directly to the end user and so sometimes that creates a little bit of a lesser creative product mm. um and but also sometimes it, yeah the clients aren't it's not even all that creative considerations are made for other reasons and that can be frustrating but you know you have to kind of roll with the punches and within that try and do the best that you can to put a creative um a, a creative argument forward that hopefully they they understand and they can hear and but that's i think that's the great thing about commercials as well you just learn how to deal with people and um, how to use your own skill of trying to uh, sell an idea and put an idea forward it's just hard when you i'm not wired i'm not particularly wired as a great salesman like right. my only sale is my passion you know, and if I, if I, if, if, if I have to 
sacrifice and compromise on something that really makes it worse it's it's it's, it's very hard you know you you, yeah, you do kind of take it personally <laughs> that's our, our biggest asset and our biggest problem is the fact that we're not great salesmen but we we're great at what we do <laughs> um, yeah 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 exactly do, do you find that because you work in a in a adjacent um industry to mine because i work in motion design and title sequences and um, basically marketing for for films and television shows right and do you find that um being in new york you know being in america does that is that fundamentally different from being in south africa or being in dubai or being in australia does it really change things you know what i think it i think it does um but where, where are you philip i'm in portugal in lisbon portugal. portugal so so i think i would say it's a little bit more different living in dubai and living in south africa um than it would be than say portugal i think portugal is more connected um through europe to kind of like what's happening and there's other creatives like certainly when i left south africa it wasn't really a place at all for film or creative industries per se dubai the same um australia a little bit more so so there's so it's more an issue of mentality so you you grow up as a kid not thinking that film is a possibility at all like if we didn't live if we didn't move from south africa to dubai and i was i was a little bit more exposed to like other cultures and i was exposed to other americans brits um um even the local emirati culture i think i would have still had a relatively smaller mindset um and i wouldn't have thought that oh it's possible to like do something with my life in a creative capacity um and i don't know I, i'm kind of like speaking very theoretically but i do think that's the case and so for me moving to new york all that i can say is i, I will say this i don't actually work in new york all that much um i think since you know since i've been here which is now eight years i've done two let me think maybe one commercial I've shot here, which was for Fox sports. And then I just recently shot, shot a thing with Pharrell, but it wasn't even a commercial. It's like a short documentary thing. Those are the only two kind of like quote unquote commercial things that I've shot here. There, there are, there are definitely people that work here, but I think a lot of people maybe in Europe and even America see my style or aesthetic or whatever, my voice as a little bit more European. Um, so I, if I, if I moved to Europe, I would probably, I wouldn't say I'd work more, but I would be closer to where the work was. Mm. Um, I love living in New York. Like I said, when I came here in 2010, I was like, this is a dream. Like if I could live in New York, that would be amazing. Not honestly, not for any, um, oh, well, that shows that I've made it, you know, not for any of that reason. It was just a very like a, an inspiring place to be. The, the The people that you'd meet, the things that you see, I just and I just really loved this the city aesthetically. So for me, it was more almost like it felt like a quote unquote spiritual home, you right. know. And I I needed to live here. So I don't necessarily think it's made anything different necessarily for my work, um, except that it's inspired me. 
you know, and that, that, yeah. that's huge. That's huge. And on your, on your personal, back to your personal work, um, trying to get features and short films funded so they get made. I know that's really difficult. Um, that's, that's a very well-known thing, but um, do you find that, uh, are there any particular ways to try and get funding or to try to get films made that you found that have more success than others, apart from, you know, putting up the money yourself, but, you know, actually trying to apply to any other resources to make that happen. Is there any suggestions for anybody listening that you, that you may have? To be honest, that's what I, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Look, I, I will say this. I have, um, I have invested, um, in a lot of my own and in, in a lot of my own projects and that's been the way that I've been able to do it it's not sustainable like long term um uh especially if you're trying to try different things and when you start i would also say this when you start people understand that you like you know people want to help and contribute and everyone's kind of just starting everyone that you're working with is kind of just starting so everyone wants to do it either for the real or they want to be part of that experience when you become a little bit more established it's not like that you know it's like people now understand that you are kind of like a, a uh, you know a seasoned uh, director and so you also I, I did this film in the Ukraine and we paid the you know we paid the whole crew um and it just that's now the way that you have to go about doing passion projects, especially if the passion project is a little bit bigger, you know, um, and, you know, try and help, help everyone's time. It's, it's, it's easier on the post side. I think people are more willing to kind of contribute on the post side, but when you're paying for like below the line crew, it's like, you know, that's a, it's a day job for them. Um, and so supportive of that. I think now, because it isn't sustainable, it's not like you can't pay out of pocket for every single project that you do. I'm trying to figure out, or maybe you can. I mean, that's what I've been doing kind of over the last while. I just can't do all my projects that I want to do. There's not enough resource to do it. So I've been looking. Um, I, I, I've i been looking. Obviously, there's Kickstarter. And I think with Kickstarter, it's just you need to sell. You know, like you need to be a, a salesman. You need to be on it all the time. And I just, I don't... <laughs> Yeah, I just don't feel like I want to annoy people by by overselling, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I am looking for other avenues. Like I'm exploring an NFT avenue with a friend of mine, and like basically build kind of like a community around a project using NFTs. Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that I'm exploring. I'm, uh, I wanna. That's the next thing I want to try is just see if there's kind of a a, a space in the market for that sort of approach. I think other than that, like I posted something last weekend just to kind of like see what people's responses were. And it ranged, it ranged from, you know, uh, chapter four bankruptcy, you file for chapter four, uh, sorry, chapter 11 bankruptcy or start an OnlyFans account, you know, or, <laughs> or you know, get money from your, from your grandparents or your mom, your mom and your father or sell your house or get three mortgages, you know, like just, all those things. Um, but I think that's, that's the nature of funding, funding your passion. It's like, it's, I guess it's kind of like you do what it takes, you know? Um, mm. So, but I think for me right now, it's like, I want to, I want to find a way to do it without fatiguing people basically with, 
hey, fun, you know, fund my film, do this thing. It's like, how? What's a smart way to do that so that you just don't become annoying? You know? Yeah, no, I uh, I hear that. Um, I I've heard that some countries um who are looking to get a a day in the sun as far as movie making and get on the radar. Places like I know that Canada has a big film fund. Canada has a yeah, I know they that. Do. Anthony Scott Burns. Well, I, I don't know if, if you know who he is. He he's um, he's done yes. quite a bit. Uh, yeah, he's done just he did this film recently, and I know he started out by uh, getting some money from the uh, the Canada Film Fund, and I think that right. the Love I think started the same way. Um, so mm. Canada is one example. I know there are other countries who are like that, but probably don't have as much money as either Canada or other places, but um, mm. there's there's some things there. I know it's, it's still not easy, but maybe it's easier in some other countries. Yeah. For people who are It listening. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Europe, I think, is easier. Um, like the Netherlands has some, I think, other countries in Europe. Uh, Denmark, you. I think, has a couple... Sweden, I think, but Canada, Canada, I know, has has people ask, you know, apply for grants uh, all the time in yeah. Canada. America just doesn't have that, um, you know, I think. And if they do, it's almost like a competition and it's like 5K, you know. So what America does have is they do have like rich financiers, but I think a lot of those people are just like looking in the in the feature space predominantly, you yeah. know, so it's harder it's just harder to it's harder to get short films off the ground i think you have to be you have to be super strategic which i am not i again i'm not strategic i'm like a curiosity follower i just go where the curiosity goes but i think sometimes you do have to be a little bit more strategy focused and um be be everyone says basically how can a short be a proof of concept for a feature? That's, you know, if you can do that, then we can look at the short. We can look at doing the short, but it has to show an idea that you have in mind for a feature. So sometimes the thing that I want to do is just a short. I feel like, the, you know, the, the the idea is embedded. It's a quick resolve. Um, a feature version of this is just going to be boring, you know. I have one or two things that is shorts, but that can work for a feature. Um but yeah, some of my ideas are just like no, it's just it exists as a short only, you know. Yeah, I've um I've been working for over a few years on an idea on a series about war photographers here in Portugal, and I got a producer attached to it, a friend of mine who's a producer, and she's really uh -huh. stuff. She's produced quite a a few feature films and, and TV shows, and she got you know the um, the strategy for us was to get a little bit of money from uh, every place that we could. So the Portuguese um, cinema fund, and then we got to Netflix a little bit, and then we got something from HBO to do a little bit of a, of a pilot um, episode. So we've been building and building and building, but then the pandemic hit and we had to kind of stop because the money stopped flowing. But I can tell you that's, that's one thing that does work. It, it takes a long time and that's, not for everybody, but it's a very very slow burn. But um, the interest was there, and it was it was working. Mm -hmm. So that's you know, um, wow. getting a producer on board, somebody who actually has the uh, 
the right mindset for the sort of thing where we're not good at, you know, the um, the salesmanship, right. the strategic uh, uh, aspect, mm. and and the contacts of people just to reach out mm. very important. And that's that's something that I was happy to delegate to somebody else who could really right. do it and who understood the vision for the project and was there to support me, right, and to push me to do th things that I don't normally feel comfortable doing. You know, taking meetings, talking about finances, working on spreadsheets, right. all that stuff. Uh, she pushes me to do, yeah. do it. So having somebody who's uh, very different from you uh, on that uh, aspect is kind of a big deal, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, that is, I think that is, that is the one thing that, uh, that, that is such an asset is to have someone administratively, logistically money focused, you know, yeah. in your, in your team. Um, just have you back. do all that stuff yeah 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 no absolutely well this was this was great man this was a great conversation i loved it this has been fun <laughs> dude so so nice connecting so nice chatting it's been a long time coming it's been a long time coming <laughs> yeah it's been a, it's been a long time coming um and i've i've like i said i've been a fan for a long time and um oh, same 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 philip same thank you absolutely it means a lot coming from you so i've been looking forward to having this conversation with you and i kind of when i saw that you were on vacation just a while ago i kind of i thought to myself well maybe now's the time <laughs> it was <laughs> so, so thank you for that man i appreciate it no absolute 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 pleasure it was so lovely so lovely connecting and um yeah i mean if you come through new york hit me up my sister actually lives in lisbon with her family so nice. I'll, I'll hit you up if i'm ever there It'd be, be nice to actually meet in person yes please do please do that'd be fun, that'd be fun. all right sir that'd be amazing and, uh, all right have a great day